Hey, it's Dr. Mike T. Nelson here again, back with another edition of the Flex Diet Podcast. And today I've got a really fun one, more on the psychology and neurologic aspects of training and a peak performance with Dr. Chris Friesen. And he's from Canada, eh? We talk about all different aspects of performance. Uh, He's worked with everyone from entrepreneurs to high-level athletes, such as goalies in hockey. He used to be a goalie in hockey himself. And we focused more on the neurologic side, initially talking about uh, some neurofeedback techniques. And if you've never had neurofeedback, it is the most bizarre feeling that you're hooked up with all these electrodes to your brain and you're watching usually a video, and the video will kind of get a little bit hard to see. It'll kind of fade out. The sound will kind of fade out, and then it'll kind of come back in again. And that's tuned to different aspects of your brain that they're trying to change. And it is a bizarre feeling for that to be happening unconsciously. Um, So we talk about what exactly are you doing in neurofeedback, We discussed HRV, the nervous system, autonomic regulation, control of state. And at the end, we get into some super fascinating stuff about the limbic system and how you want to use more of your prefrontal cortex than your limbic system. Sort of use the newer parts of your brain as a human. And even quizzed him on the concept of physiologic flexibility. I didn't know... (laughs) his answer was going to be a positive or not so you can listen in for that and it was super fun conversation so check it out as always brought to you by the flex diet certification go to flexdiet.com f-l-e-x-d-i-e-t.com and you'll be able to get on to the daily newsletter via the wait list there and as soon as it opens up next time we will let you know a flex diet certification is a ranking of eight different interventions for recovery and nutrition and a complete system of how to use them based on the concepts of metabolic flexibility and flexible dieting. Uh, so let's get into the podcast. Here we go. Awesome. I'm here with Dr. Chris Friesen. Did I get that correct? Yeah. Yes. Um, yeah. Thank you so much for being on the podcast today. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Yeah. And just uh, give us a little background of how you got into what it is you're doing now, because you're doing a whole wide variety of of different things that are, I know are kind of related, but to someone looking on the outside, you're like, well, I don't really see how all those kind of fit together. <laughs> Yeah, so so you know, I, I see these as all being connected. I, I work. Um, I'm a licensed clinical and neuropsychologist. I'm also trained and licensed as a forensic psychologist. I don't do that work anymore uh, with criminals. I do police work. Um, I do uh, for two police services here in Ontario, Canada, um, and uh, I still do a lot of brain work, which is called neuropsychology, which is a subspecialty within clinical psychology that specializes in the brain. And I still treat people with uh, anxiety and depression. About 40% of my clientele are peak performers of some sort, uh, whether they're uh, executives, whether they're athletes, whether they're entrepreneurs, and basically help them uh, really focus on uh, if it was one underlying you know, connection between everything I do and the way I do things is, is basically learning to modify your psychology, physiology, and neurology to optimize your performance. Uh, so that's sort of it in a nutshell. Oh, that's awesome. That's super cool. And yeah, I when I first started working with clients, I was very much on the physiology side. And I was like, oh, it's just all physiology. This isn't going to be so hard. And then mm-hmm. the first couple of clients, I was just like, oh my, why, why am I going to school for exercise physiology at the time? I'm like, I should be a psychologist because this... <laughs> has way more to do with psychology than it does physiology in terms of what I do with, you know, clients on a day by day basis. So I ended up going back and just started taking neurobiology courses for fun to try to figure out like, well, how does the brain work? How does it take information? How does it process it? Like what is the client sort of quote unquote 
thinking, mm-hmm. like how are the different processes like that? So, yeah. Awesome. It, it does get complicated. It, behavior change is, is quite complicated and that's, um, yeah, the, everyone runs into this is, is we got this knowledge and often we're motivated to use it on ourselves. And we have some people that are really super motivated. Then we get people that we explain it to them and we assume that like us, we would do it. And it's, it's actually, uh, for a lot of people challenging to, to make any changes. Yes. Very true. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so some of the, one of the techniques I think you talked about is neurofeedback, correct? Mm-hmm. And do you want to explain a little bit about what exactly is neurofeedback? Sure. Um, neurofeedback is essentially what we call operant conditioning, which is uh, Skinner, um, not Pavlov, but Skinner. So this is mm-hmm. the idea that we get reinforced for doing certain uh, behaviors, and we are more likely to repeat those behaviors if we're reinforced. Uh, there's more than that. There's punishment and things like this, but it's really uh, positive reinforcement. So w- what it involves is uh, trying to help people learn to regulate their brains Um it, it, you can go from the sort of peak performance side all the way down to the clinical or neurological side. So, for example, um, a quick example would be people with attention deficit hyperactivity disorder or ADHD or used to be called ADD, um, which uh, is uh, one of the areas that neurofeedback has the most evidence that in and, and seizure reduction hmm. uh, that has the most uh, experimental and scientific evidence behind it. Essentially, what we, for example, the ADHD, uh, we usually do something called call a quantitative EEG, which is a, a brain, we call it brain mapping. Uh, essentially, it's an EEG like you'd get at a neurologist's office or a uh, sleep study, except uh, the neurologist and the sleep uh, study physician or psychologist, uh, sometimes there's psychologists that run these, they are looking at um, uh, the raw waveforms of the EEG, looking for, like a neurologist would look for seizures, for example, uh, spikes and waves and things like this. Sleep, sleep experts are looking for sleep stages um, and other things. And what we're doing is we're taking that data and we're putting it uh, and comparing uh, each individual's brains to a, a, a normative sample and seeing if there are deviations. So think of standard deviation units and we get these sort of colored brain maps. So uh, for example, in the ADHD, about 80 to 85% of ADHD patients have excessive slow wave activity or under arousal or under activation in the frontal lobe hmm. so put your hand you know above right above your eyes and put your whole fist all the way to the by the top of your ear that's your whole frontal lobe it's gigantic um, and they have under arousal there and this is why uh, some people get confused because individuals who are um, ADHD have ADHD they tend to be hyperactive talking fast all over the place and uh, people think, well, their brains must be revving so fast. And it's actually the opposite. The brains are revving so slow. And what, in a way, it's like self-stimulating. Um, they are excessive, have excessive boredom proneness. And they are constantly doing things, talking, changing subjects to feel normal, hmm. to self-stimulate in a way. Um, and this is why the medications for ADHD, almost all of them are stimulant medications, right. which again would look like, yeah, but like make, it makes no sense. Why would you give someone who's so hyper a mm-hmm. stimulant? It's because what it does, it normalizes this underactivation or under arousal in the frontal lobe. And it, so, for example, if we do an, a brain map on a patient with ADHD or a peak performer, whoever it is, and if excessive slow wave, uh, what we would do is put a, a single sensor uh, somewhere on the frontal lobe, usually in like around the anterior cingulate, which is sort of we call FZ or F, FZ, uh, depending on which country you live in. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and we basically they watch a video, for example, YouTube, or now we can make it work with Netflix and Disney Plus. <laughs> Not that oh, kids like the Disney Plus. Mm-hmm. And what happens is the uh, we. Behind the scenes, we're on another computer and we're changing these thresholds. So when their brain's basically performing too slowly, uh, the video will pause or shrink. And when they're performing, when the brain speeds up, uh, the video will play again. And so they're getting reinforced every time uh, their brains behave in a way that we want it to. So bringing it back towards self-regulating, getting it to be able to engage and turn on on its own. And it takes many, many sessions. Maybe let's say ADHD would take 20 to 40 sessions uh, twice, twice a week for it to have an effect. Just like working out and training, you can't just say, hey, I did an awesome workout. I guess I got huge calves now. Mm-hmm. Um, no, it doesn't work like that. You're going to have to do this uh, twice a week for you know to see any gains probably 40 times or something like this, just like neurofeedback. It's kind of like a use you have to if you don't use it you lose it kind of thing it's uh, it's an exercise and this is all going on unconsciously 
Correct. I mean, the person watching it is not consciously trying to do anything. Yeah, I've, I've been doing neurofeedback on patients and clients and myself for years and years and years. I couldn't unconsciously or just or even consciously, sorry, um, make myself have particular brain states like this, even though I can do it with feedback. So if I said I want more alpha or less theta or more beta in this part and this part, I can't do that in any conscious way. Um, what, what it is, is exactly like you're saying, it's an unconscious process. And I don't mean like Freudian, mysterious. Mm-hmm. All you have to do is you have to sit there, not move, not try too hard. Just It's called passive volition. In other words, you passively want the video to play. You have to be interested in the video. This is why it helps to have videos that people are interested in. And that process of just allowing the brain to do what it's going to do own way. It's similar to sleep. Uh, so for example, we all know that you can't force yourself to sleep. You can stop moving and stop purposely ruminating. At, at some, some people can do this. You just have to stop and let your physiology, let your parasympathetic kick in and just allow yourself to fall asleep. You get out of your own way. It, it kind of reminds me, I'll give you a quick example. When I work with um, peak performers like athletes, I have people come to me say, hey, I have Olympic trials coming up. Um, I get nervous or I have the Olympic Games or Pan Am Games, whatever it may be, and I get really anxious and I'd like uh, to you to help me uh, not feel any anxiety. And first thing, you know, I say is, okay, well, uh, uh, first of all, that's impossible. Yeah. Uh, you feel anxious about things you care about. Uh, the problem isn't that the person uh, feels anxiety. The problem is that they think they should not feel anxiety. That's mm-hmm. actually the problem. And I do a little paradigm shift, and you you might have some knowledge of this as well. There's something called the galvanic skin response, which is a sweat mm-hmm. response. In our, you, you can measure it on in our fingers. And what I do, and this is this passive volition idea, I say, hey, look, I'm going to put you, uh, uh, you know, on this computer, hook you up to these uh, electrodes. It's measuring your stress response. This 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 line going up and down the screen. This is your sweat gland activity. When it goes up, sympathetic arousal is kicking in. When it goes down, the sympathetic gas pedal's off. It's not parasympathetic, it's sympathetic turning off. That's how that works. Essentially, um, um, I say, okay, I want you to try really hard to make it go down. Let's see. And I'm doing this facetiously, but mm-hmm. I, I, I'm a much nicer guy in person. So I say, <laughs> just, I like to work really hard to make it go down. And almost all the time, it just keeps going up, even higher. And I say, this is the problem. The harder you try to control your anxiety, you're actually turning on the sympathetic nervous system and making it worse. So now just stare at the screen. And just allow the, the line to do whatever it's going to do. Stop trying. And only then will the, the line come down. So it's, it's, it's that same idea of passive volition. Just like you, you show up at the Olympic Games, the harder you try and relax, you're actually making yourself worse. You're tensing up. You're getting more sympathetic activation. You need to let go, allow yourself to feel anxious, and then you can use you know the – the increase what the adrenaline is giving you, right? It's giving you better CO2 max. It's giving you better uh, f- uh, focus. It's giving you more endurance uh, CO2 max. It's giving you some more strength. Um, but if you fight it, actually, the, the anxiety is going to go higher and higher, and you're going to go into panic mode, and then you can't use those things. And no big performance occurs when someone is so relaxed like they can take a nap. That just doesn't occur. It, it's the opposite. You have to feel some level of arousal or activation in order to perform at your best. Yeah, I have a little phrase I tell clients. It's like, rarely is anything ever solved by just trying harder. <laughs> yes, yeah, it's so like, true. Like that's it's, the, yeah. you need effort. You need to work hard at times, but to just try harder, if that's your solution for everything, it's not going to be too effective. <laughs> well, it's true. This, this is like our whole you know, society and our whole the human race is built on um, making things happen. And this is why monkeys don't fly spaceships. You know, <laughs> we do. Um, uh, I mean, we have a gigantic frontal lobe. That's the main difference. But the, the, the you know, basically, um, we are experts at changing our states in a way or, or our, our, you know, let's say, for example, our back hurts. Well, we can sit down. We're cold. We can put on a jacket. So we can figure this out and do these things. We're problem solvers, basically. But when it comes to emotions, 
you can't problem solve your emotions in your state at the time. You can't just say, oh, I'm feeling anxious. I'm just going to not feel anxious or I'm just going to tell myself there's nothing to be anxious about or say that uh, I'm feeling like I don't have a lot of self-esteem. I'm going to tell myself, look in the mirror, say, you're a really good person, strong person, confident person. That shit doesn't work. If it worked, uh, like I'd be out of a job, right? Uh, there's <laughs> the, uh, the, the, when it comes to emotions, trying to control them backfires. Allowing your emotions to be there and listening to the information it gives you is, 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 is what they're there for. What about your thoughts on – so I do some stuff with trying to change people's states. And you can mm-hmm. either do it like biochemically, biomechanically, or kind of biopsych. And that the goal I'm trying to have people before they train, especially people who are a little bit newer to training, mm-hmm. is to make sure their state is still good while they're training so that we're then building a positive association. And I know there's probably a lot of debate even with lifters about do you, can you have a max or a peak performance while still being in a positive state? You know, like kind of the old mm-hmm. videos you see of like it's typical of power lifters <laughs> getting angry and hitting each other mm-hmm. and that kind of stuff. And yeah. yeah, you can definitely get some gross motor output from that level of arousal. But what are your thoughts about the... Do you think there's a negative cost to that over time? Do you think you should be exercising even for peak performance more in a positive state? Or is there a role for a potentially a negative state also? I think it's, yeah, I think it depends on the person. I think some people, I'll give you an example. So I work with um, a lot of high-level wrestlers. There's a big wrestling um, club here in, where I, near where I live that, that it's like an Olympic training site. And uh, sometimes with coaches, they have this, they don't understand that everyone's physiology, psychology is different. Mm-hmm. And so you have some people who are, have a person, I'm big into personality. There's a personality dimension that I call susceptibility to negative emotions and stress. The literature calls it neuroticism or emotional stability. Um, and basically, we all vary on this. Most people are near the middle. Some of us are really high, some are really low. I have a book that you know helps you identify these and how you can help it help you achieve your goals. Um, and Essentially, people who are high on this trait of negative emotions, uh, they uh, are already very worked up, you know, before any competition, for example. And they'll have some coaches that just come in there and think, oh, yeah, you need to be really worked up, especially with wrestling. And they Mm -hmm. almost like to smack your face, tell you you're a loser, uh, uh, scream in your face. And what happens is you have this, you know, area of peak performance where arousal needs to be sort of moderate and it just pushes the needle further and further to the right, which puts them into panic mode and they underperform. But then you can have someone uh, who's kind of like that ADHD style. They have underactivation of the brain, underactivated physiology. They're very low on negative emotions. They probably need that smacking in the face, et cetera, to get going. So everyone's a little bit different um, in terms of being positive or you know, negative. I, I just think it depends. I think um, uh, like powerlifting, you know, um, probably going to a place of anger uh, is going to be important, I would assume, for most people. Um, you know, chess, <laughs> probably mm-hmm. not. Place of anger probably doesn't help you. I don't know, though. Uh, everyone's a little bit different. And I'm not sure if I'm totally answering your question, but is that – am I Yeah, yeah. Track? No, that's cool. Um, so my thought is if we hypothetically say someone has the same level of arousal, right? So we're at the same level, um, mm-hmm. but somebody gets there via – more, I guess for lack of a better word, positive emotions, like I'm going to do this, this uh-huh. is my best, I'm thinking more positive things versus, you know, the old thing of, you know, imagine something horrible, like I've heard powerlifters say this, like, I can't remember who it was, um, but, mm. you know, I've got a thousand pounds on my back and my thought process is if this potentially is going to kill me if I don't make the lift, right? So more of a darker kind of negative side and you know the person was successful completing the lift i just wonder i don't know if there'd be any difference in terms of acute performance again depends on the personality but i wonder long term what is the cost of always having to perform at your highest under a negative quote set of emotions Mm. yeah that's interesting there used to be this concept called type a personality Mm. um which uh which is pretty much debunked but these are people who are Hard driving, uh, t- uh, time urgent, um, ultra competitive, and hostile. These are sort of the main traits that make this up. Um, and basically, the idea is cardiologists were just 
noticing this with people in their, that they saw who had tended to get heart disease. Um, and it turned out that they did more research and it turned out just to be the hostility part um, hmm. that would contribute to that. Um, and then there's some newer research sort of, you know, maybe, I wouldn't say contradicting, but putting some doubt into that altogether. So, uh, so it gets complicated. Yeah, it's yeah. funny how things change over time and you research it more and it goes away. So, um, uh, I, I, I think that, uh, arousal is not the same we used to think so that oh i'm really happy and excited versus uh, i'm really uh uh you know uh scared oh it's the same thing my heart's racing faster for example but it's actually not quite true the the negative emotions have negative you know effects on our bodies um you know in terms of uh, I, I don't know all the details but you know cortisol secretion etc cetera, etc cetera. Mm-hmm. um so constantly uh, you know, doing that um could take a toll on your your cardiovascular health in a way. Um, I think that uh, having, um, but again, like certain particular, I can't imagine it being in powerlifting and thinking positive things. Uh, maybe you know, maybe maybe it would work like that. I'm not totally sure, um, but uh, I, I do think that if you're training every day and you're going to that dark place every day, it's 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 going to be it's probably not the greatest for you. At the same time, though, it's interesting. There's a whole sub-area of research uh, with motivation and performance and goal attainment. And it's interesting with people who are high on the personality dimension of negative affect or negative emotionality, or I call it susceptibility to negative emotions and stress, those people tend to be highly motivated by imagining all the bad things that will happen if they don't do something. Mm-hmm. Um, people who are low on this but also high on extroversion, and everyone knows oh, I'm an introvert versus an extrovert – People often people don't know that one of the main traits that make up extroversion is positive emotionality, and there are actually different parts or systems in the brain or networks in the brain. Uh, negative emotions and positive emotions are not on a continuum. Unless you're depressed, if you're really depressed and really in a clinical panic, uh, or sorry, anxiety disorder, they, they go together. But in everyone else, they're actually not correlated. They're separate traits of almost a near zero correlation in the normal population. And so people who are high on extroversion, in other words, high on positive emotionality and low on negative emotions, they tend to be motivated by thinking of all the great things that will happen if they achieve a particular goal. So I think using that and extrapolating that to what we're talking about here, again, knowing that personality part, you know, how awesome will it feel if I can make this lift? You know, how what, you know how proud I'm going to walk around the gym now or, or, or this gold medal or whatever it may be, that can be highly motivated and activating, whereas someone who's uh, really high negative emotions, uh, they you know might be more activated by thinking about all the bad things, how embarrassing this is going to be, or, or or this kind of thing in terms of motivating them, getting them activated. Yeah, you just see that even across the board in people in general. Like some people are very much motivated by what others tell them they can't do, and other yes. people that kind of just crushes them. Mm-hmm. Um, so related to sort of positive negative emotions. I've always yeah. just wondered about the the cost of that person who's highly motivated to prove everyone wrong. Not that the they can't achieve a great outcome from that. There's obviously very tons of examples where I think you can. I don't know. Mm-hmm. To me, that always just seems like a. I don't have any data to prove this, but I just wonder what the long term cost of that is. And there may not be one at all, right? It may just be. That's just how they operate. That's kind of their operating system, and there isn't really a negative side effect to that. I don't know. <laughs> well, you know what that sounds like? There's another – there's globally cross-cultures in time. There's five global personality dimensions. So I'll quickly run through them, mm-hmm. just their names. I said the first two of them, extroversion, introversions, one, uh, negative emotions versus emotional stability is two. Uh, openness to experience versus being closed to experience. Um, uh, conscientiousness, in my book, I call it motivation and self-control, uh, which my definition sounds, it's exactly what it sounds like. Um, and then another one's called agreeableness. Hmm. Um, and so people who are high on agreeableness are very trusting, uh, very it's, it's really our attitudes towards others. This is what agreeableness is. It's our, we're trusting of others. We're straightforward. We're modest. We're um, not overly competitive, this kind of thing. People who are low on this, they tend to be competitive. They're not modest. They tend to be suspicious of others. They maybe hold their cards too close um, uh, at times. And there's, there's good and bad of all the traits. It's 
in my mind, and this, not everyone agrees with me, but I, I believe that all these traits and where you fall are all good and bad. Um, it's not like there's a perfect personality, which is low negative emotions, high positive. That's bullshit. Uh, it depends on your life, depends on your job, depends on a lot of factors. But the guys that you might be describing are a bit more on the disagreeable side who are doing this. Their motivation is coming from, I'm going to prove you wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to show that I'm better than you. And um, like, kind of like, fuck you. Uh, you know, I'm, 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 you know, this is, uh, this is, I'm doing this not for some like, oh, this is like, I'm just really challenging myself. I'm doing this because co- I'm comparing myself to other people right. who I maybe, you know, don't like, don't trust to some extent. And there's different variations and, and, and uh, depths to this. Yeah, it also in a semi-related reminds me of a, a good buddy of mine coaches a lot of NFL uh, athletes, mm-hmm. and I was just talking to him one day, and he was we were talking about um, defensive backs, and I was like, "Did you ever notice that like they tend to be very, lack of a better word, egotistical? Like I'm the greatest, I'm the best. Like they'll mm. they'll completely goof a play, and the next one it's like it didn't even happen." And I right. said that. I said, do you find that interesting? And he's like, yeah, that's generally true. He's like, but if you think about what they actually have to do, they're mm. pre- they don't know where the other player is going to go. They're trying to prevent them from getting the ball. So they're already at a disadvantage because they can mm. only react to the other person. Yes. And he's like, if you get stuck in that where you did not you know, deflect the ball or they made a big play on you, you get stuck there. He's like, there's people who just washed out because they can't, they can't get that out of their head, and they keep replaying the sort of the negative outcome of it, and they just just don't make it. He's like, yes. paradoxically, if you can, he's like, it looks like they're not caring to the outside person, like they didn't take it serious. But he's mm. like, if you can forget about that and just focus on the next play then you don't have that sort of negative motor replay all the time running in your brain. So his theory was that they tend to be that personality because they have to almost be that sort of archetype to perform in the situation that they're in, which I thought was super interesting. And again, it's all completely anecdotal, but... <laughs> well, no, I think I think you're making some good points there. I think there's some, a lot of truth to that. I know I used to play goalie, um, and I work with a lot of hockey goalies. Oh, and yeah. Um, you know, this is, it's a little bit similar in the sense sure. that you're, you're just reacting. You don't control. I mean, you can, you can smother the puck and, and, mm-hmm. and get a whistle, but the other than that, you're, you're reacting. And, you know, what, what really differentiates from a psychological side, of course, is physical talent and fitness and all these other things that play a huge role, obviously. Um, but that, you know, once you get to that top level, it's often these smaller things like your tweaks in your diet and tweaks in your you know, training routine and tweaks in your are using an aura ring to measure HRV, you know, mm-hmm. this sort of thing. Yep. Um, <laughs> yeah, me too. Yeah, there you yeah. go. Uh, uh, and so, um, but then the psychological side, are you able to reset after each play? Like once they score a goal and if you can't let go of those thoughts, those this that memory and a trauma, if you want to mm-hmm. call it that, it's not really a trauma, but that embarrassment, um, you know, you're screwed. You're screwed. There's just no way uh, you're you're gonna con- once they score a goal, it's it's like a punk- puncturing a hole in a boat. Um, water's gonna start to leak out, and and and, and then there's gonna be a, it's gonna weaken the hull or something. Another the hole's gonna get bigger, and uh, it's just gonna be downhill. And and that's, I mean, you can say this with any sport, with anything in life, of course. But being able to, uh, you know, take that what you just learned from that play very quickly and say, look, what did I just learn? Like if, if it's a goalie, it's a guy passes it across. They do a one timer, and you and you often goalies tend to lift their stick, and so the five hole, the between the legs opens up, and the puck can go right through there. And it's embarrassing, right? Everyone, will fuck the five hole, went right through mm-hmm. him, right? That's what it looks like. It's, yeah. it's so embarrassing, but it's a, it's a simple thing. And and if you can say boom, and and even I get the goalies I work with to replay it in their mind really quickly, four or five times, because you just did the motor learning of lifting it, and so that physically doing it is imprinting this motor learning in your brain to lift your stick. And so either physically, I get them often to physically do it two or three times if they can between until the pucks dropped again, where they do it again with a f- stick flat to re kind of reprogram that motor learning, or at least visualize themselves doing it with, you know, the muscle twitching as you're doing it to make it as real as possible. People say, and basically what did I learn? I learned to keep my stick flat. Okay, good. Now I, now I'm ready for the next one. reset, let that go. 
go forward. As you know, the zone occurs not when our minds are in the past, not when our minds are in the mm-hmm. future. The zone occurs when our mind is fully present in the moment. You can't stay fully present forever. It's impossible. But uh, for the majority of your time, your mind is here and now. And that's with any sport. You can't get under you know, a, a, you know, a deadlift or, or you know, a squat rack and your mind's not fully there, you know, you, you got to be fully attentive. It's like running a motorcycle. You got to be, people like it because you have to be really fully attentive. You can't just be la, 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 like you can do in a car. You're going to, you can die, you know, with just running over a squirrel. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's, uh, um, so you have to, people like that, that, that being in the flow, being in the present moment. So I think that's really important. And I like what you said about these, these types of different positions, like in football and different personalities and being able to do certain things mentally, uh, really contributes to how well you do. Do you think part of that is also related to transitions in the nervous system at a high level, like autonomics? Like how well can you go from more of a parasympathetic to a sympathetic state and back to a parasympathetic state? Um, a good buddy of mine who works with a lot of uh, top uh, hockey athletes mm-hmm. came out to visit him. So I was doing some hands-on work at one of the, I wouldn't say the guy's name, but he was formerly in the NHL one of the top people in the NHL who was known for deflecting pucks midair into the net. Oh, nice. Which is just crazy when you think of like how fast everything is, is moving and that kind of stuff. And he had played for mm-hmm. many years at a high level. And uh, it was funny because when we were doing work on him, like if you told him like, okay, here's what we're going to do. I want you to follow my, my hand here. We did some eye stuff. Very focused, like very in the moment. But yeah. like when we were doing hands-on work, did some scar work, like he friggin' fell asleep. You know, he was either like kind of on, like, okay, here's the task. I'm with you. I'm doing it. Or I'm, I'm just chilling out, relaxing. There's nothing for me to do. Compared mm. to some other guys, a friend my buddy had worked with too, said that if they're very sympathetic, he's like, they'll, he's like, play two to four years and then something happens. They get injured. They get burnt out. Like they never hear from him again. Uh, he said in his experience of people who have played for 5, 10, even you know, 12 years or longer at a, at a high level at the NHL, mm-hmm. like those are the people that can go from extremely parasympathetic to extremely sympathetic and then back to being parasympathetic again. Like they can regulate much better than, than other players. I love that because, you know, I'm in the process of rebranding just like a new website and, and doing more corporate talks and things like this and really trying to, what's, what, what's my philosophy? What's my message? And it really comes down to this. Um, basically, psychological, physiological, and neurological flexibility, I think, mm-hmm. is the key. Of course, physical flexibility, all these things go together. Yeah, yeah. But be, being flexible, um, um, you know, and, and, and for example, HRV biofeedback is something I do a lot with a lot of my clients, uh, you know, kind of like five seconds in, five seconds out breathing, um, et cetera, using most clients would use something like inner balance from heart math. Mm-hmm. Um, in the clinic, we have high-end like thought technology equipment um, and uh, Nexus stuff. But uh, um, what, what I explain to people is this is not a relaxation technique. Even though you might feel relaxed, just like when I teach meditation, the goal isn't to have a blank mind or feel relaxed. I don't give a shit if you're relaxed. Uh, I mean, I do in a way, but that's mm-hmm. not the goal. Get this out of your head of what society tells you. Oh, you're meditating. You must be really chill. Or, oh, I'm doing this deep breathing, which HRV biofeedback isn't actually deep breathing. It's long, slow breathing. But it's, uh, it's we're training your nervous system to be more flexible. You know, vagal tone, the barrel reflex. We're, we're, we're training these mechanisms. So there's a short-term effect. Just like exercise, you're not training you. I, I like you don't get a client and, and you train them and get them to run on a treadmill and say, "How do you feel? I, I I don't feel good. I feel great." It doesn't really matter. The goal isn't how you feel in that second. The goal is how are you going to feel in six weeks from now when you walk up the stairs and you don't have to you know stop at the top stair and rest because you mm-hmm. can't breathe anymore or whatever it may be. So we're introducing this idea of it's flexibility. It's and so some guys are really good at that. So when I think of this hockey player, I don't know who he is, but if I think of this hockey player, you know, if I think again from the brain and, and sympathetic system, et cetera, and, and our personalities, they tend to be like a little bit ADHD. Forget about, I don't like that term, but people who are more sensation seeking and extroverted, they tend to have a bit more slow activity, not like an ADHD patient, but they're, it's underactivated. So they have extreme boredom proneness. And so they perform really well in action packed things. But when you do something boring, 
their 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 arousal is already so low, mm. sympathetic arousal, you can say, or parasympathetic dominance, or they're, they're they're let's say in the brain, it's a lot of slow activity, and so it's like a car, it's almost it's almost turning off, it's like sputtering out. They need to give it gas. Tell me something exciting to do. Boom, I'm back, and so. I do think there's some truth to that, uh, that there might be some more longevity in athletes who have that more flexibility. There's actually new research coming out showing, um, I forget if it had to do with the autonomic nervous system, but I know for sure it had stuff on uh, variables looking at uh, the brain. So people whose brain were overactivated, the opposite of what we're talking about, where it's like revving really fast, we call it fast beta. Um, with those people, uh, I think they did I'm not sure if it was PET scans. They weren't EEGs. I don't think. I don't remember the details. But basically, they died sooner. They had they didn't mm. live as long, and it makes sense if your physiology is always so hyped up, yeah. like you're describing, sympathetic, uh, you know, dominance, um, and your it's probably guaranteed the brain will be like that as well. I mean, obviously the brain controls the body, but um, the it makes sense. You're you're, you're uh, uh, you know think of telomeres and all these things right it's only so if the higher it's revving it's like a car if your car is revving you know close to the red line all the time it's not going to last long you know um and i work with a lot of athletes a lot of people contact me and, and executives and entrepreneurs because they have a lot of stress and they're feeling a lot of anxiety and what i say to people is this is your new normal if you it's like you have type 1 diabetes it's it's not negotiable whether you t- take your insulin you're, mm-hmm. you're going to be dead in like a week or two or whatever it takes, you know, if you don't take insulin. If you want to perform at your peak and you experience a lot of stress, in other words, you're high on that personality dimension of susceptibility to negative emotions and stress. If you want to perform better, you have to have a new lifestyle. Uh, and this includes like respiratory sinus arrhythmia breathing, which is that five seconds in, five seconds yeah, out that affects heart breathability. Yeah, RSA breathing. And uh, it includes uh, other things like – uh, meditation. I mean, these are the cheap and easy ones. And then there's like mm-hmm. neurofeedback and then there's photobiomodulation and then there's mm-hmm. um, other neuromodulation techniques that that you're going to need to do this, these things. Some of them are passive, kind of like a TENS machine, right? Totally passive. And some are exercise, like a physiotherapist giving you exercises. The exercise version, which is like neurofeedback, is going to be better because it can lead to long-term changes. Whereas the other things... Um, uh, are, are going to be, you know, not so, uh, uh, just more temporary. So even myself, like I've done brain maps and stuff on myself many times and, uh, your, your brain maps are very stable over the lifetime. And, um, I have excessive fast activity in the central part of my brain, um, which is good and bad in the past. I couldn't turn my mind off to tr- to sleep. I get really excited about things. I can talk fast just like I'm doing now. Um, and, uh, I can come up with lots of great ideas, but I could also, when I was younger as a teenager, I got really anxious a lot, mm. like with hockey as a goalie and a lot of pressure and, uh, in school and they call you out in class. I'm like, Oh my gosh, I'm gonna have a panic yeah. attack. You know, <laughs> don't ask me, don't look at me, yeah. teacher. you know? And, um, um, and now once I've done, I've done all these things, I can, I'm flexible when it's time for me now to be like uh, activated. I can get activated when it's time for me to go to sleep. I can let that go. And it's not really that, um, what's the word, uh, volitional. It's just, it's flexible. My mind just does it when it needs to do it. Now, if I need to calm down, I can calm down. If I need to get worked up, I can work myself up pretty easily. And so that flexibility, physiological, psychological, and uh, neurological flexibility, I think is, uh, the key. Cool. I like that. Um, Mm -hmm. have you noticed in people that, tend to be more on that higher end sympathetic that their resting heart rate is higher and that their aerobic base is lower. That's just something I've noticed anecdotally across the board. And my thought is that it may be related to they're missing more of the vagal tone. They're missing more of that parasympathetic side. Like intrinsically, they just can't up their parasympathetic vagal tone as much as someone else who may be in a similar situation. So they're kind of missing part of that low end control of the system. Yeah, that, that, that does make some sense. Um, as you know, sympathetic and parasympathetic are actually not really totally correlated systems or two separate systems. And, and so sometimes people think I'm either a sympathetic or parasympathetic, which were, for example, the sweat response, um, is purely sympathetic has no, so far as I know, parasympathetic, uh, innervation. So it's basically only a gas pedal, uh, on and off, whereas the parasympathetic is the is a brake, um, so it's a different pedal, uh, like in yeah. a car. And you can like move both pedals at the so same simple. time too. 
right? So you can adjust the exactly. gas down or pull it back or press the brake in and pull it back or try to destroy the engine and floor both of them. And <laughs> Exactly. But I see this all the time. I don't know this when you said the idea of having um, um, aerobic capacity. I don't know. I never test that. What I do know is I do something called psychophysiological stress profiling, which is a thing within the biofeedback, neurofeedback world. Um, similar equipment to like a lie detector, you know, measuring, again, muscle tension. Lie detection also checks your blood pressure, which is not like biofeedback for blood pressure. Uh, you, you, don't, you don't actually use blood pressure as the feedback. Uh, the best one is, is respiratory sinus arrhythmia breathing and HRV mm-hmm. biofeedback um, and temperature training. But so what we do, one of the things I do now uh, with one of the police services here is we have a there's a program across most police services called safeguarding. It's basically a bigger system, a bigger program, but part of the programs usually involve you meet with a psychologist uh, uh, once a year as a quick check-in to make sure the officers, uh, usually the high-risk officers, so I use the, only the specialty groups, not the uh, beat officers, um, and make sure they're doing okay just as a check-in. So traditionally, just it's like a quick conversation. We might give a psychological questionnaire about PTSD symptoms. When they asked me to take that over a few years ago, I thought, uh, and they told me it's going to be two or 300 of them a year. And I thought, oh boy, uh, but let's make this better. And so what I decided to do was take what I do with the people in my clinic and bring it to the police station and test them with a psychophysiological stress profile. And basically what that is, it's a sort of standardized test where they sit down, we're measuring HRV, we're measuring heart rate, we're measuring galvanic sweat response, right? Skin response, uh, temperature on the finger, we're measuring muscle tension on the uh, forehead and then on the trapezius hmm. um and a breathing sensor as well i think that oh, we have an eeg as well so what we do is we, we run them through a series of stressors so for example um two uh, two minutes with your eyes open two minutes with your eyes closed to get a baseline and then we do these mild stressors like an example would be a math stressor which is uh, we get them to count uh, backwards by a random number like 1098 mm-hmm. uh by by sevens yeah, um, prime numbers. And we pointed out every time they're wrong. Yeah, so most people, as we look at what happens, you know, after the fact, what does their heart rate do? What do all these different things do? And there's correlations, but some people are there. Everyone's a bit different. Some people are heart rate responders. Some people are sweat responders. Some people are temperature responders. Some people are all of them. And um, uh, a lot of people say, I don't have any. I don't notice anything, but it's still showing up on these tests. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and so I, I do think that um, uh, s- some people are. You know, like you're saying, more sympathetic dominant. And we're always sympathetic dominant, like throughout our day, just to be yeah. awake, you know, in a way, just to talk. You have to be sympathetic dominant because sympathetic is not all bad. No. Um, uh, there's some some research showing that uh, uh, I think it's the oh, what is it? I think it's a very low frequency uh, on HR uh, by HRV. Uh, the the very low frequency range um, at rest, I believe, if it's too low because often people think oh that's sympathetic but if it's too low like on 24-hour readings that's actually predicts um cardiac risk hmm. um so you you have to have a decent sympathetic arousal or, or response but also that parasympathetic and you know the way i look at it is training up the parasympathetic through aerobic activity or hrv biofeedback or rsa breathing um that is like it is the break uh but it's it's um you know, people can't change their lifestyle. Like if you're a police officer and you go, you're in the SWAT team, and if you're in a zone or an area where there's lots of, you know, you have to do a lot of work, you're not sitting on your ass all the time, your stress response is going to turn on and off and on and off, and you can't change that. And you, you want it to be, you want your stress response to kick in. You can't go into that being all parasympathetic, dumb. Yeah. <laughs> you, you're going to be under aroused, right? And so, but when that's over, to be able to recover from that, um, and, and so it's it's kind of like that, like we all know now, it's not all go, go, go. It's train, go hard, but rest hard. Train hard, rest hard kind of thing, or train smart, of course. And I think that's, you know, what we're, what things like the aura ring is helping people see my HRV is, is, is low. Um, or I get lots of people say, if you're on any of the Facebook groups of the aura ring or, or the biohackers groups, people will say, oh my gosh, uh, they think that all the high HRV is great. And mm. the higher, the better. And it's like, well, no, no. <laughs> HRV will go really high when you're, you're in serious trouble, like you're seriously overtrained or you're really sick and it's your body shutting down and forcing you basically to recover. So it's really interesting, right? Like with our new technology, now we can actually measure these things. It's not just like, 
hey man, do more squats or it's, it's, there's biomechanics now there's physiological HRV, for example, and just like psychology, it's not just like, Hey, how do you feel anymore? I mean, 98% of all psychologists, that's still what we do, but we can actually measure your stress response through HRV, through other things and get a more objective measure and see if we can make movements. It's just like our brain. We can do brain mapping and see if we can make movements on these things. Cool. Uh, last Mm -hmm. two questions. Um, One of the thoughts I've had related to physiologic flexibility, which is awesome that you mentioned that because it's not too many people talk about that, is Mm -hmm. if we can target like the homeostatic regulators in the body and kind of train their capacity as a way of enhancing sort of the potential of someone or enhancing, I should say, maybe their capacity doesn't necessarily mean that they'll be able to use it per se, but just to try to make them a more robust human being so for example temperature right we have to remain 98.6 fahrenheit but we can go into cold water immersion we can go into sauna uh, ph we could do lots of you know hydrogen ion producing exercise we could do some crazy breathing techniques uh, fuel systems blood glucose being regulated and then carbon dioxide Mm -hmm. and oxygen what are your thoughts that if we train kind of within those areas to expand their capacity do you think that translates into them having just better baseline capacity as a better functioning human, I guess you could say? 100%. I'm absolutely convinced that um, most of our modern problems are because we don't live in line with what we're genetically designed to live, the environments and our lifestyles, you know, from light exposure in the mornings for circadian mm-hmm. rhythm, a lack of blue and bright lights in the evening, same thing. Uh, our cave person uh, ancestors, um, they, they, uh, that's how they live. They woke up when it was light. They ate more whole foods, natural foods. They did lots of, of exercise or constantly moving, not sitting on their butt all day, looking at screens. Um, uh, but of course, I'm not a Luddite. It's, it's, you, yeah. you, uh, <laughs> uh, it, we have to kind of hack our way through it. I think of us almost like as astronauts. We send people to space. They have to improvise that there's no gravity. So they have to do special workouts. They have treadmills where they're strapped down, mm-hmm. right? Uh, all sorts of things to, to make up for that. And I think we kind of live like that bubble now. Think of it, especially now, like in the sort of pandemic times where we have, Definitely. you know, doing everything on Zoom or Skype. Um, we're sitting down. We're, you know, it, it's, it's different. So I do think that. Our mental health, our physical health is deteriorating over time. It's getting better in some ways because of you know better sanitation, et cetera, but it's deteriorating because of these lifestyle factors. And I'm a strong believer um, in, for example, um, um, you know, helping, uh, let's say I have an infrared sauna. So every morning mm-hmm. I use infrared sauna. I've been taking cold showers for about five years. And um, you know, I see this as I'm actually exercising uh, uh, my uh, my blood vessels. There's muscles that cover your blood that surround your blood vessels, and so uh, your your arteries. And uh, so these we're 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 giving them a workout that we don't work out. Because think about it: no matter where you live, you can live in Florida, you can live up here in Canada. Uh, you know, it's gets it's as hot as Florida. You know, in the in the summers here, I'm near Toronto. I'm in the Niagara region, but in the winters, it's you know, it's like Michigan, right? It's, yeah. it's crazy <laughs> cold. So so um. Uh, it's, um, but we're wearing better and better clothing. Our cars, like our seats now heat up. You can warm up your car before you get in there. So we're not getting these fluctuations in temperature. So we're losing what I call hardiness. So there's a lack of, lack of psychological hardiness because we can, you know, we can, don't have to feel bored anymore. We can look at our phones to, um, you know, change our states like this, um, and, but never get used to any like emotions, like like boredom is an emotion. Basically, you, you, you need to get used to that um, and feeling anxious or scared or these things are important. They're good for us. Same as our physical body. We don't expose ourselves to extremes of hot and cold anymore. We you know exercise. So I really think that doing all these things from you know increasing uh, um, your, your fitness, uh, think of high intensity interval training is you know, a big thing and you know more than I do about that. I do that myself but but um uh you know saunas and cold showers these are training our system to do what it normally did back in back then it was mm-hmm. really cold at nights you know and it was really hot in the day you know i think of where we came from in africa um and so uh this is our bodies are designed for that but we live this this like you know science fiction nightmare almost it's getting closer and closer where we just sit in front of a computer with a bunch of wires and stuff that that basically makes us feel good all the time and makes us takes off all the the hard work and our whole society is becoming soft 
Uh, the police tell me this all the time. It's like, what's wrong with kids these days? They're so soft. Mm-hmm. Guys are trying to jump off the bridges because their girlfriend, you know, broke up with them. It's like, what is happening? You know, this is just didn't happen 20 years or 30 years ago. Um, and it's, I believe it's, we've lacked, we're lacking psychological hardiness and physical hardiness. And this is, this is, this is showing now in our society from all the diseases we have to uh, the mental health problems we have. And that's why kind of in a way biohacking, like again, like we're astronauts, we got to, you know, I can't run out in the sun naked and get my vitamin D because I have clients, but I can turn on my infrared sauna or my, or my uh, I don't have a juve. I have a, a platinum LED, you know, mm-hmm. full panel yep. LED and uh, yeah, red light. Uh, infrared and red. Yeah. This stuff, uh, you know, and, and to do that. And that's, um, it, you know, this is, going to pays off in the short run you feel better but it's going to pay off in the long run as well when it comes to chronic diseases that we face cool yeah i mean my short version is i i agree because because <laughs> you look at all <laughs> yeah. what happens to most physiologic systems when you remove stress is they get worse now of course we can overload them with too much stress and now yeah. that outstrips your recovery you're going to have problems but it's almost like now we're seeing the the inverse of it you know, and you use the example of like putting people into space, right? You put them into microgravity. If you don't do any countermeasures at all, like you lose bone mass, muscle, like fluid retention gets all screwy. But it's just the body adapting to that environment. It's like, hey, there's yeah. no stress of gravity. So what do I need all this bone and muscle for? I'm not using it. Screw it. It's costing me a lot of expenditure to hold around. Bah, just get rid of it. <laughs> I it's think true. that applies yeah. to other systems too. Cool. Awesome. Well, last question. Um, with all your mm-hmm. experience and all the groups you worked with, which is really cool, what would be like to the, kind of the top like two or three things you would recommend our audience uh, do based on your experience? Could be anything. Mm. So, uh, assuming your audience, like you said, is are basically fitness enthusiasts. Yeah, more um, trainers, people looking to perform better at a lower cost, but not sacrifice their health in the process. I think the first step would be to understand and almost change your philosophy, just like the same thing we've just been talking about, that my goal, your goal is to um, live as close to our ancestors. And I don't mean eating raw food and, you know, all these things, but as close (laughs) to our ancestors as possible, Uh, you know, uh, from all those hacks, from getting up. You know, uh, and, and exposing yourself to light. I, of course, like I'm an astronaut. You know, in a way. Uh, so I have my my uh, my 10,000 lux lamp that I use um, in the mornings for about 20 minutes. Um, you don't look into the lamp; it just has to hit your retinas. Mm-hmm. You know, but you don't look stare into it; it's too bright. Um, you know, uh, get hormetic stressors, like you're saying. You know, basically get yourself to feel uncomfortable, not for crazy amounts of time. You don't need to be in a sauna for two hours. It's going to probably kill you but yeah. <laughs> it could kill you um you know you go in for 20 30 40 minutes something like this um you know um uh you know challenging yourself by uh, cold showers i often use this uh, i call it the cold shower challenge with some of my clients as long as they're healthy i say check with your doctor first in case mm-hmm. you have a heart condition but what happens your mind is going to come up with all sorts of excuses and this is another thing that could be a takeaway is um you know our minds are designed to part of our minds, we call the limbic system is designed to prevent, uh, any uncomfortable feelings, yeah. um, physical or mental. And it has a strong voice. It's the most powerful system in our brain because it allows us to survive. And it was, it's really important when someone points a gun at you or a bus is about to run you over for you to not think and your limbic system to basically take over fight or flight. It's extremely important. Um, we can't turn it off. It's normal. And, but what happens is your mind, let's say in the cold shower challenge, is going to come up with all kinds of excuses. I need a hot shower. Uh, it's going to be too cold. I won't be able to handle it. This is silly. This is your limbic system trying to prevent the short-term pain you're about to experience. But nothing comes uh, – if you live your life based on your limbic system, some people call it the animal mind or the monkey mind. I don't love those terms, but mm-hmm. it's basically the limbic system. It only has a short-term perspective, like like minutes. It's what's going to reduce pain right now. But that's not really that makes you you. What makes you you is your frontal lobe. Limbic system is deeper in the brain. The frontal lobe is your goals and values. What do I want to do with my life? Who do I want to be? That's your values and your goals. So this is what you want to make your decisions. I have a quote, um, which is the most successful people make their day-to-day decisions based on their goals and values, not on the, based on their moods, not based on their energy levels, not based on what their mind says they can and cannot do. 
Um, that's the definition. If you had to ask me one thing that makes people successful, it's people who live by that. So in other words, um, you wake up in the morning and you're supposed to do high intensity interval training. And I do this almost not every day, but most days of the week. Uh, and I, my mind will, my limbic system will say, sleep in, you don't need this, et cetera, mm-hmm. all the excuses in the world. And then I have to say, thanks mind. I know you're trying to protect me limbic system. But I decided I'm going to do this because it's in my best uh, interest in the long term. So being able to notice when the limbic system is sabotaging us, and for what it is, it's just a bunch of thoughts. It's only short-term protection. is not going to help you in the long term. Sometimes it's right when the bus is about to run you over. It's saying, get the fuck out of the way. That's a good point. (laughs) Get out of the way. Limbic system, let it control you. Get out of the way. But for most of the time, it's not helpful. So living like our ancestors, um, learning to identify and notice when our limbic system is activated and telling us things like that we should and shouldn't do that are not based on our goals and values. Um, and when it comes to a simple hack, I, I'm a big fan of, of, of heart rate variability biofeedback, like buying an inner balance, 130 bucks or so mm-hmm. is a sensor. It works on iPhones and Androids. And, and, and training that barrow, barrow uh, reflex uh, vagal tone, right, getting this system more powerful um and you know the way it it helps you is is to recover primarily uh so i know when i first started doing this training maybe seven years ago i used to drive into a big city um and if someone cut me off just before i trained on this on hrv biofeedback you know i'd notice my physiology being activated from the highway and i get to work i can still feel my heart rates up my blood pressure is probably up a little bit i can still feel the adrenaline sort of circulating in my bloodstream and maybe that's 20 30 minutes later and then I did the training uh, after about five, six weeks, I started to notice the same things would happen. I get the same initial response, the physiological activation, but after two, three minutes, it would go away. And I didn't make, it took me a week or two to figure out I'm like, oh my gosh, that's vagal tone. Oh my gosh, that's what it's doing. It's helping me get back to a homeost- homeostasis, to a steady state. It's pulling me back. It's making me uh, more resilient. It's reducing the damage this is doing to my body. So those are probably the three takeaways I, I would, I would, uh, I would provide. No, I love that. That's awesome. I, at a base level, I think of someone who's a more robust, anti-fragile human, they can take and absorb more stressors and then get back to baseline faster and then literally become better because of that insult. Obviously, if you get too much of an insult or too much of a stressor, you're going to break, you're going to have damage. But how much can you train various systems of the body to handle more of those insults. Your goal is not to spend the rest of your life avoiding all of the insults possible because that's going to drive you the wrong direction because you're not using the sort of adaptation, use it or lose it principle of the body. No doubt. And it, it, I, I 100% agree. It's the body and the mind and the brain as well. It's yes. it's it's all the same. It's, it's, it's really cool that there's underlying principles that are underneath all of this that are the key to your psychological well-being, your physical well-being, um, your happiness, your success. You know, it's, uh, I, I like the quote from the Dalai Lama, uh, pain is inevitable, suffering is optional. Yes. Yeah. So life is going to be pain no matter what you do. To, to reach, and I say this in my book, you don't get to the top with no pain. It just doesn't exist. It, your life is, you're going to feel physical and mental pain no matter what decision you make. If you decide to stay on your ass all day or whatever you do, it's still going to be painful. But whether you suffer is whether you you know do things that are painful for a reason, for good reason. So there's people like Nelson Mandela, who was, I think he was in prison for 27 years. And he was in lots of pain, obviously, taken from his family, et cetera. You know, 27 years of your life, he's basically most of his adulthood, adulthood got out when he's really old. And, um, but he would probably say, I had a lot of pain, but I wasn't suffering because I, I went to prison for a really good reason. I, I decided to fight against apartheid and, uh, you know, I, I'm, I knew this might be a consequence and, um, you know, he was, it made him, it didn't break him down. He became the prime minister or president uh, of South Africa after that. So, you know, it didn't destroy him and actually potentially made him stronger. So it's, it's, it's this idea that you can't avoid pain, but if you could experience pain for a good reason, you won't suffer. You're going to do it for a reason and you're going to grow. And, uh, Jim Rohn has a quote too, where he says, um, He's uh, he trained uh, Tony Robbins and mm-hmm. uh, he's a self-help kind of guru. And he, um, he says, uh, uh, you either have the price of discipline or the price of regret, your mm-hmm. choice. I like that. So you're going to pay the price of one or the other and discipline. Uh, it hurts in the short term regret. 
uh, will last forever. So this is the choice we make for our day-to-day decisions. Do you want to live in regret or do you want to basically uh, just pay the price of discipline? And the more you do that, the the less problems you have in life, the less suffering you'll experience. Yeah. I really like the part about the limbic brain too, because I once we had the lockdown, I uh, converted a freezer and put uh, cold water immersion in there oh, wow. in my garage. I'm at home. I'm recording this in Texas right now. So I it's 52 degrees this morning, so I ran in a pair of shorts on the beach past all the locals <laughs> with their hoods and everything else on. I'm like, I'm not running that far. I'm not going to freeze. It's windy. It's cold, but it's it's not anything where I'm going to damage myself, you know, but yeah, it felt horrible. <laughs> it wasn't fun. <laughs> um, and with the freezer, with the cold, it's the same thing. Like you, you get a little bit more used to it, but man, every day when you get in, it still sucks. You know, but I'm like, okay, yeah. can I choose, can I make a decision to use my prefrontal cortex to override my limbic system in the short term and still do the thing? Can I get in? Can I control my breathing as fast as possible? Can I control the stressor? And co- the nice thing about yeah. cold is it's something you can do daily. There's not like exercise. There's probably only so much capacity you can do, things of that nature. Um, and I found that there's some physiologic benefits to it, but I found the mental benefit was much greater than I thought it was going to be of that decision of, okay, I'm going to do this. Like, I don't even care if I get out in 30 seconds. That's fine. That's not the goal. The goal is, can I override that little part of my brain? That's like, this is a horrible, stupid idea. Why do you want to go sit in 42 degree water is a dumb idea. (laughs) Can I override that? And then kind of build up that strength and that muscle, those neuronal associations so that, yeah, I'm literally training myself to do the hard thing. And so over time, that will become a little bit easier. It's never going to become super easy. Uh, but then you can transfer that discipline to just other aspects of your life too. I think that's exactly that's exactly the reason the cold shower challenge is, is exactly, I say it's for five days. No matter nice. what your mind says, you're going to notice, label what your mind says. Oh, I'm noticing the thought that I can't do this, et cetera. Do it anyways. And there's there's besides the physiological, and there's you know neurological in the sense you know there's you know noradrenaline or adrenaline release things like this you used to feel activated and awake and Mm -hmm. but it's it's really that sense of what we call self-efficacy, and that's our belief in ourselves. And the more we give in to our limbic system, the more we feel out of control, and the more we you know don't give into the limbic system and do what we want to do. In other words, not what our limbic system wants, what's comfortable. I mean, what we're goals and values you know, what we really want to do and want to be, then our, our self-efficacy goes up. And that's really the key is, uh, is, 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 is getting back control uh, of our, of our behavior and our, and our minds. And by doing this, challenging ourselves, despite what our mind is saying, the limbic system is saying, and it, it basically, like you said, it, it quiets down the limbic system because it's saying fire, fire, fire. And, and eventually it's like the, the, it was it the boy who called, cried wolf, you know, after a while, it's like, you realize it's just, it's just, it's just my brain trying to protect me. It's not real. It's, it's, uh, um, it's so important. And it's like, I just think it's the absolute key to success and whatever that means in life of happiness. It doesn't mean you feel happy, but you feel a sense of control, a sense of purpose, a sense of, um, lack of you're not a victim anymore even of your own circumstances and of course it'll make the circumstances out there that happen to you less impactful because you can decide you know you can choose how you respond you can't choose how you feel and you can't choose those original thoughts that come up those are automatic those limit you can't erase your limbic system you can only choose what to do after the fact but if you don't even know your limbic system is running your show you're screwed because you have no you don't even know that's happening i work with lots of clients they have. They just don't even understand that's what's going on. I mean, your limbic system is making these decisions, and once you start to make small decisions like the cold shower and plunges and things like this, um, your that system's going to get weaker, and your frontal lobe is going to get stronger. And it's just it's the absolute key. Yeah, and last comment on that too. Like we went out, or I went out kiteboarding here in uh, South Padre, Texas, and it's been mm. super warm and super nice. And then we got. And northerly came in, so it got super windy yesterday, and it got cold for for Texas. It was probably in the upper fifties, low sixties. But you go out in the water, and it's you know twenty four miles an hour. It it gets a little chilly, but mm-hmm. I've done it enough where I'm like, okay, can I actually go out? There isn't going to be many people there. There's only a handful of us, and it was super fun. The wind was great. Uh, the conditions were 
not ideal at all. But it's mm-hmm. like, can you even enjoy those types of conditions? It was probably one of the funnest sessions I've had in the past year. You know, it was super windy. Wind was great. Everyone was having fun. Um, you come off the water and you come in, you're like, oh, man, I'm really cold now. <laughs> but when you're doing it, you don't really notice it so much either. So I think there's a long-term transfer of that skill to all other aspects, whether it's doing high-intensity exercise, doing, you know, trying to learn something that's frustrating that you're trying to, you know, kind of, I don't want to say force your way through, but kind of grit your teeth and make it through. I think that's very useful life skills. So thank you for that. Yeah, it's all the payoff, right? It's thinking, what? how am I going to feel after this? And how yeah. do I feel other times? Because think, again, the pain of regret of Jim Rohn, that's exactly what it is. Imagine what, what you would do if you backed out of these things. Yeah. How are you going to feel about yourself? And it's it's this is these are things to help motivate yourself. How am I going to feel? I'm going to feel not good. I'm not going to feel happy. Um, and changes in our beliefs occur after taking action. They don't occur very well through debating and motivating and pumping yourself up. It, it's it's that's the key. Like people phobias, this is what we do. You can talk for two years about let's say you have a phobia of driving because they had a car accident about how safe driving is, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. It's not really effective. Just getting them back in the car, no matter what their mind says, and just slowly increasing just like training it's like i can't work out well let's start off lifting one pound okay now Mm -hmm. it's two pounds and 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 boom quite quickly you can build up strength you can build up mental strength and these people will get over it basically our beliefs change with action they don't change otherwise like in in terms of just trying to change your thoughts your motivation watching inspiring videos action creates change awesome well, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Uh, tell us more about your book and where people can reach out to you. Uh, so my book's on Amazon. It's called Achieve. Uh, subtitles, find out who you are, what you really want, and how to make it happen. It's kind of exactly uh, what hey, the book is exactly that. It's about learning your personality, your values. It's really about a self-exploration. Your, what are your talents and skills? And then um, coming up with like a mission, mission statement, and then coming up with your goals. Those are often these books do it the opposite way. And then at the very end, we have a big, a big chapter on um, what to do on a day-to-day basis. Everything from, you know, dopamine uh, problems where you mm-hmm. can't stop scrolling on social media. I think there's a new Netflix thing that I think I haven't seen yet, but talks about the same thing. Hmm. I've known this for a long time, um, uh, how this uh, we can get into loops and what to do about it. So there's that. Um, uh, I have a, my my performance website is called freezenperformance.com. Uh, that's more where there's a new one coming out called uh, drchrisfriesen.com. That's more for my kind of corporate speaking, et cetera. It's still being developed at, at this time. The last website is my clinical website, which is called niagaraneuropsychology.com, which has way more, lots of information on neuromodulation, the brain, photobiomodulation, neurofeedback, biofeedback, brain mapping, uh, this kind of thing. Um, and of course, uh, I'm on Facebook. If you look up Friesen Performance or Niagara Neuropsychology, Twitter is Friesen Perform and uh, Niagara Neuro. Um, and LinkedIn, I think it's under my name. But those are the best ways to, to find me. Cool. Awesome. I would highly encourage people to reach out to you. I really appreciated our conversation and you sharing all your wealth of knowledge and everything today. It was really awesome. So thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me on. It's uh, It's been fun. Cool. Thank you so much for listening to this episode with Dr. Chris Friesen. Really appreciate him and all of his time uh, coming on here. A big shout out to my buddy, uh, Ted Rice. Check out his podcast, Legendary Life, for uh, the referral to the doctor here. Uh, Enjoyed the conversation. Got to get all uh, neuro on this one, which was super fun. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, you can check out the Flex Diet Certification. Go to flexdiet.com, F-L-E-X-D-I-E-T, for all of the information. And if you're on the newsletter and you're listening to this in uh, October or maybe early November of 2020, I'll give you a hint that I'm working on another course on the physiologic flexibility. So if you're on the newsletter, that's where you're going to get all of the information on that. It's free to get on the newsletter. Go to flexdiet.com. Go to get on the wait list. And that will automatically put you on the waitlist for the Flex Diet Cert and add you to the newsletter, which is where about 90% of my original content goes out to. And it's free to hop on. And if you don't like it for any reason, 
you can unsubscribe. That's okay. I'm not going to hunt you down. Uh, so go to flexdiet.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, or even if you didn't, leave me some feedback. Any feedback is useful to make it a better show. Greatly appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening. Talk to you next time.